full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I'm quoting Guy Spear. I think that we have lost some kind of sense of moral responsibility the financial industry should feel towards the country or towards the people that make it possible. And I think that I would like to believe that enough people like me say what I am saying, that the next generation of people who participate in the financial markets will constantly be thinking, in what ways is what I'm doing serving the broader society? Or is this important for society? Or am I worsening the civilization? Unusual, thoughtful stuff for a financial master of the universe. That is Guy Spear, manager of the Aqua Marine Fund, $170 million strong, and he authored the book, The Education of a Value Investor. He's ours for the hour. Full disclosure. Stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for more than a quarter century, located at the top of Richmond's Carytown, Elwood Thompson's. Joining us from Zurich, where a bottle of Coke costs north of $10, is Guy Spear, manager of the Aquamarine Fund. Sir, thank you so much for setting the time with us. It's such a pleasure, Robin. I was just listening to your introduction. You know, if you were to look at some of my more recent returns, I wouldn't look like I'm a master of the universe, I can tell you. I don't, you know, when I when I have some of the, the go through periods when I have the kind of performance that I've just had, I feel anything but master of the universe. Well, so. let's just say it's a, a person kind of in the uh, mold of a Warren Buffett or a Seth Klarman or Whitney Tilson, a value investor like you actually likes to wear his humility or his quote unquote poverty on his sleeve. But back in 2007, you made headlines by bidding uh, $650,000 with another person for a charity lunch with Warren Buffett, your idol. How did you justify that in value investing? You know, and, and, and you know, you know, Robin, it, it's a lot easier to justify it to you than it was at the time to justify it to my wife. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> was it worth um, it? Where did you guys go? We went to Smith & Walensky's in New York City. And uh, if you go there, they actually have a plaque commemorating that lunch and some of the other lunches that have taken place there. And, you know, two-thirds of the bid wasn't me. It was this Indian friend of mine, Monish Pabrai, uh, who came with his wife and two children. I was there with uh, just my wife. So it was one-third that amount, if that makes any of your listeners feel any better. Do you feel like you got a value? Was that was that growth at a reasonable price? Did you buy it with a value <laughs> moat? I mean... <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, this year the launch just went off for, I think it was $3.7 million. So, you know, we got it one-quarter. And if you think that if you think that 3.7 million somebody might be rational to spend that amount of money, then then we got a great deal, you could argue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, the way I kind of saw it, and well, the way Monish Pabrai taught me to see it, and he really has an unusual mind and sees things differently, is that there are many people who give way more than that to some university or other charity, and if they're lucky, they'll get some stupid plaque on the wall. Was what we were getting was was you know three and a half unadulterated hours with Warren Buffett to just kind of dig into his brain. And <laughs> I try to do a Warren Buffett impersonation. So, so, so guy, call, call me Warren. Don't, don't call me Mr. Buffett. Uh, 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 do, do you like cherry coke as much as I do? I apologize. That was just my phone ringing. Hold on, let me just put it on BNB. A true value investor does not shut off his phone. <laughs> no, I sh- I'm supposed to be talking to you from my library, where. Uh, it's all quiet and there's no phones and all I'm doing is thinking in a dark room on my own. But, but let's say let's let's be fair here. You're managing at Aquamarine 170 million dollars, which is more than 10 times what you started with with friends and family money. I believe was it 1997? That's true. That's that makes me feel pretty good actually. 
How did that happen? I mean, you write that the first time you saw Warren Buffett in person was in 91 at Harvard Business School. You were 25 years old. You were not there to learn about value investing. You thought about efficient markets. You were you were going to be a cocky investment banker. How did you then traverse those, you know, five, six, seven years to become a, a passion, an impassioned value investor? You know, Robin, first of all, I have to tell you, I'm really impressed because you've read at least part of the book. <laughs> it's really awesome. <laughs> I, you know, it's hard to find time to read things. And uh, uh, so I think that, you know, here's the, um, here's the redeeming news for, for the listeners in the world is that sometimes the, the pattern for your life comes out of your worst possible moments. And, uh, you know, I would never have reached out to Warren Buffett figuratively uh, for guidance and wisdom, if I'd not have been in a really, really low point in my career, in my life, I'd gone to work for a Wolf of Wall Street type firm. And I was disgusted with myself and the world. And for good reason, what we were doing at that firm was not something that anybody at that firm should have been proud of. In fact, uh, the company was shut down by the NASD about three or four years after I left. And so, you know, I was just I was at a dead end and I was looking for a way out in a certain way. I was looking for a way to move forward. And so I had to sort of discard a lot of my preconceived ideas about what the world was like. And so I was willing to reach out to somebody that I dismissed only a few years earlier. Well, Guy, let me slow you, let me slow you down. So you accepted a job with, in, in, your, in your eyes, you say, a second or third tier Wall Street firm, an ethically challenged Wall Street firm after business school. You could have done anything. You had the pedigree between Oxford and HBS. Um, it was a weak economy in the early 90s. But what did you think you were getting into? Because I went into the brokerage industry. I worked for Goldman out of college. I hated every minute of it. I, I believe I can say that now uh, after my non-disclosure 16 years later. But I learned a lot. I had a different view, I think, from the outside, from the untrained undergraduate eye about what it might be about, but internally kind of seeing how the sausage was made um, and, and the everyday moral ethical compromises really, really made me feel dirty with myself. And that was Goldman's acts. And I, I would say that, uh, you know, it's sort of, I think that I have not worked inside Goldman's acts, but the way Goldman's acts is, is, is a whole class of behavior above what you get at some of these other firms. And, you know, what I, I in some ways, I, I would, um, I think at the end of the day, my decision was, it was a very stupid decision. It was what Whitney Tilson called a, a graduation speech that he gave a dumbass decision. Um, and so I can only blame myself. But if I look at the conditions in which it arose, I think there's an element to our educational system that takes people who are good at exams, and I was good at taking exams, and puts us kind of on some railway tracks. And the end of those railway tracks is, you know, partnership at a law firm or, you know, managing director at Goldman Sachs. And um, I just was looking to get off that set of railway tracks. And I'd been on them for so long that, that I was willing to do any random stupid move to do it. Right. And it was a random stupid move. <laughs> Well, guy, let, let's 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 tease that apart for a little bit because I didn't even know what investment banking was when I went to college. But it was something that you realized the upperclassmen, juniors and seniors, would go to the hotel in town and they would be faded uh, with with these fondue and sushi dinners. And Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs would come and talk about culture, and you knew that there was something amorphously prestigious called investment banking. And you would do it for two, three years. You'd either go on associate VP partner track or they'd write you a great recommendation for the feeder program into business school. So there was this inertia 
Other people were doing it. It must be vetted. It must be good for me. I'm not cut out to go to law school. I couldn't win a Rhodes Scholarship. I mean, there are only so many templates, you know, even for people who have accomplished so much, who are great at tests, who are resourceful enough to write these great applications to get into great schools. It's amazing uh, the dearth of options we perceive we have after a four-year liberal arts education. You know, um, uh, that's probably right. And But actually, we have many, many options. We have as many options as there are humans on the planet. Each human is an individual. Uh, but I think that there's an element, I mean, again, I want to take full responsibility for my bum move. But I think that um, uh, the educational system that we're a part of ends up driving us into these channels until we think we only have a few options. And it's, you know, I look at... I look at uh, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. They were both uh, educated in the Montessori system. And the Montessori approach sort of doesn't focus on results so much as it focuses on expanding your curiosity and expanding the range of things that you're interested in doing. And I think that those guys ended up in very interesting places in their lives because of that. And I was on a system where I, I was, you know, I was being trained to do exams. I was a rat in a cage. And when you're a rat in a cage, you come out with so many options in, in you know, the, the reality is that you have so many options, but the um, uh, what actually happens is that you perceive you have very, very few. Sure. And so I was certainly a part of that, and I talk a little bit about that, sort of the perils of an elite education. Uh, that I really, you know, it, it's really interesting now that I have young children, I'm, I'm both my wife and I are actively resisting the temptation to lunge for a kind of a school that will sort of so at least in theory, deliver them into the hands of one of the great universities and hold back and say, if our children are destined to do that, they will do it anyway. More important is for them to feel free as children, not feel the need to deliver. Are you raising them something akin to like the sound of music? Are they running around the hills and having Ricola (laughs) cough drops and Swiss Miss? I'm just making that up, Jarlsberg. (laughs) You know, my my daughter was at a kid's sleepaway uh, a couple of nights ago where she was, she was in the mountains, pretty much in that kind of environment with cows, with bells and, and sheep, and uh, you know, uh, maybe not people yodeling in the background, but really not far off. I could send you a couple of videos you'd see, <laughs> and and I would tell you, I'll, I'll, you know, um, actually, I think it's a public post on my Facebook. Um, I on Friday went for a bike ride. Uh, through a mountain pass, a local pass. It was just spectacular. I mean, just stunning. And I feel very, very lucky to be living here. And, you know, in that sense, Robin, I think the world has changed so much. You know, you can live a successful life and be engaged with the planet, and you don't have to live in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. You can live out in the boondocks and just come in every time now and again for meetings in places like New York City. So we're really... That's changed in the last five years, you know? Mm. I mean, it's funny. I mean, we've connect, we connected, you connected to me over Twitter for the first time. And, you know, and you didn't say, and, and then I kind of went and read up about you and I looked at some YouTube videos about you and I was like, oh, this guy seems like a really nice guy. He's Iranian as well. That's so cool. Oh, I'm a rock star. You have no idea. You know, I've won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. I don't, I don't even put half, half my vitals on LinkedIn, which, by the way, was bought for $26 billion today. We'll get into that. But, yeah, you, yeah, I, I'm actually much more modest than my LinkedIn profile purports I am. Um, uh, I, LinkedIn has been bought? Yes, Microsoft bought it for $26 billion. Wow. 
Oh, that's huge. Stay tuned. We'll 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 blow holes into that. But I want to get a sense for what you were doing at this uh, amorphous, uh, we you know, shall be unnamed investment bank. Uh, when you got there, what, what was it like? What was the onboarding procedure? Uh, reconcile it with what you thought it would be like. One of the reasons why I joined that firm was that the owner was a HBS guy, and he said, "You'll partner with me." I think he actually said the words to me, I'll make you rich, my boy, or something like that. And um, I had the feeling that I'd be working very, very closely with him. And then as I joined, what I, the day or two, there was no kind of uh, an entry program or sort of analyst program or anything like that. But I didn't feel I needed any of that. I felt like I knew how to study on my own. So I didn't need to feel that structure. But I thought I'd be working very closely with him. It turned out that he had two other people who joined sort of in the few months before I joined, and they were very much more up to speed than I was at what was required, and he was really happy with them. So I found myself thrown into a room with a guy who was close to retirement, and I was just expected to go out and find deals from day one, deals that the investment bank could do. And they kind of said to me, you know, don't even show your face if you don't have a deal. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was like, you know, I was, I was in shock, actually, I think, for, for at least a few months. And I was in shock, not just, I mean, it was my first time living in New York City. And I think that if I, there's a really good, there would have been really good reason for me just to say, you know what, this is not what I signed up for. Thank you so much, but I'm done. But I just did not want to do that. I did not want to fail at what I perceived was my first job out of business school. So I said to myself, I got to do a deal, then I can leave. But finding that deal was really, really hard. And I think that, Robin, the story that, uh, you know, this, there's a story of the, the, the king who's uh, on a balcony of his beautiful palace and his beautiful daughter is there. And he sees a man uh, swim slash run across a lake with crocodiles chasing him. And the guy manages to get to the other side without having been eaten to the cro by the crocodiles. And then he gets uh, this man who's just saved his life, gets invited to the presence of the king and his daughter. And the king says, that was amazing. I, I will offer you anything in my kingdom and my daughter's hand in marriage. Um, uh, what else do you want? And the man who's just escaped the crocodile says, I just want to know who pushed me. <laughs> I think sometimes when you get pushed into extraordinary circumstances, the learning comes not because somebody gave you a learning program or you were in some trainee program, but just because you were forced to. And I somehow didn't want to leave without having done a deal. So I killed myself in a certain way, pounded the street, pounded the phones until I found one or two deals to do. And then I left, <laughs> having yeah. done one or two deals. It was a really tough time, very, very tough time for me. And uh, I think I put myself probably through unnecessary grief. I should have just left. Life doesn't have to be that difficult, I don't think. We're talking to Guy Spear. He's a Zurich-based investor and author of the book, The Education of a Value Investor. He's manager of the Aquamarine Fund. Um, he uh, traversed this interesting path from kind of being a business school hotshot to a, a, a Wall Street hire in the early 90s to ultimately going to the, the temple of Warren Buffett and saying, I would like to become a value investor. I need to be humbled. So walk us through that aspect. At some point, you had to have made this decision in the kind of the loneliness, the grueling work week, the, the kill or be killed environment of the deal-making environment of that Wall Street firm 
that you said, you know what, I need to somehow uh, create an exit plan for this. You said, I have to go out and find them one deal and then I'm going to do something else. How did you, how did you kind of emotionally uh, split up your time and decide what the next thing would be? Well, you know, I think that, again, you know, we I mentioned this sort of Montessori education. And what I've seen from the way Montessori educates children is that it tries to get children to follow their genuine curiosity. And I think that if I would have paid attention to myself, I would have seen well before the time that I left this farm that my attention and curiosity was elsewhere. And that the strongest indication was that I was spending more and more time on my lunch hours playing pickup games of chess mm. uh, in the, I don't remember the name of the park, in the shadow of the World Trade Center right next to oh, the Oh, battery, battery Park? Not Battery Park, actually. Even closer to where the World Trade Center was, there was kind of a place where people would go and have lunch and eat their sandwiches, and mm. there were also some chase tables out there. And um, so I was spending more and more time doing that, and I'd, I'd go and linger at the local bookshop. There was a bookshop on Broadway, a couple of blocks down from Wall Street. Sure. And uh, I was just picking up random books. And the one that I remember that was really turgid was called Fabozzi on Bonds. And, uh, but then one of the books I picked up was the, the this intelligent investor. I remember the green cover and I read it in a night. I mean, I took it home one day and I couldn't put it down. And I don't know, Robin, if you've ever felt, or I'm sure that all successful people have felt that, this, this sort of like burning desire that stopped me from sleeping that said, I want to be doing that. Mm. I don't know how the hell I'm going to get there, but I want to be doing that. Really, the <laughs> intelligent I, I, investor, was it the Jason Zweig rewrite? I mean, that that inspired you to do something else. It wasn't a song. It wasn't a symphony. It wasn't a movie, a, a kind of a Jerry Maguire moment. It was that book. Um, well, it was it was that book. I don't remember if it was the Jason Zweig introduction. Uh, I think the, the introduction came from Warren Buffett in the version of the book that I first read. Mm. And pretty, you know, within within a very short while after that, I read the Lowenstein biography of Warren Buffett. And again, I just devoured it. And then I started doing screens for cheap stocks on, on my um, whatever quotation system that I had. And I went and bought some software from the American Association of Individual Investors and started, and I started putting together these mock portfolios. I mean, I was just a man with a mission. Now, the truth is, I should have probably already have left the investment bank I was with because I wasn't really doing any work for them anymore. Sure. Um, but I, I think that you know, one of the lessons actually is not in the book, but I really realize it now talking to you is we really got to listen to our inner voice more. You know, and and when you listen to your inner voice, it'll take you to a good place eventually. And I think that when we don't listen to our inner voice, it just takes us way longer to get to that good place. And I had spent a good amount of time not listening to my inner voice or not even knowing what my inner voice had to say because it never had a vote or even a look. Well, I mean, in fairness, your inner voice in your early to mid-20s would be telling you to hook up left and right and go on backpacking <laughs> trips with your friends through Europe and put it all on debt. I mean, this is the struggle that everybody has with that you know, the quarter life crisis, as it were, when you're, you feel the disillusionment, you know, this McKinsey gig or this Wall Street gig was not what it was cut out to be. I used to be the alpha male, the alpha female, the straight A's, the, the top SAT score, and I'm just a spreadsheet grunt over here. Your inner voice is telling you to, to go out and be free and be fecund, and, and, and that just doesn't work with the real world. 
The real challenge, I think, is you're right. It doesn't work with the real world, and um, you know how many how many young young uh, people have said, you know, we cannot live on love alone. <laughs> you need to bring the bacon home. You need to pay the rent. You need to do all of those things. But but I think that often the obvious lunges for security are not the right thing either. You have to kind of toe a much more careful, nuanced line and. Somewhere, somewhere in between going off backpacking and being fecund and uh, just submitting yourself to the machine. And, and uh, yeah, it's not easy, but you have, to, you have to find a way to do that. And you have to kind of find a way to be true to your desire to be happy as, as well as your desire to have security. And uh, the people who just, you know, I think that it's, the, I look at the people who, who looked at me and said, wow, you're taking massive risk. That's insane. I'm going to stay in my safe uh, job at a law firm or, or my safe investment banking career. You know, they come out 20 years later and suddenly they realize that they wish they'd been taking the risks earlier on. So I like um, to think of it almost as, you know, a, a accounting for your misery. This is a very wonky and inside baseball, but those who hold on to these less than desirable situations and have soul-sucking jobs and, and dread Monday mornings. It's like they're amortizing their pain when others who actually say, you know what, I need to walk away from this, even if it entails one or two or three or four years of existential and job insecurity, they're taking their pain up front for maybe kind of a bigger uh, 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 an entrepreneurial high or a, a more immediate revelation, maybe you know, doing it at, at age 30 or 35 than having to do it at age 50. And, and well, I would say that doing it at age fifty is is a very very different proposition to doing it at age thirty five. In fact, I don't feel. I mean, that was I took a big risk with that uh, with that job, and it, I don't think it really paid off. Uh, uh, but but you know, if you're under the age of thirty five and you're not taking big risks, you're not being smart. It seems to me, because because the point about being young is that you can still recover. I mean, I'm not talking about jumping off bridges without a parachute, but career risks, one absolutely should be taking huge career risks because, because you've got so much less to lose hmm. than when you're 50 and you have a wife and three mouths to feed. Um, and, and so it's not just amortizing your pain. I think it's, it's downright irrationally stupid to be amortizing your pain if you're young. Now we're told we're told now to bring it back to the investing world that, yes, you should be maxing your 401k, the first job you get out of college. You should approach something like 100% equity weighting. You should be aggressive with smaller capitalization and international shares because you have the benefit of time and compounding yes. to bail you out of bad situations. It's interesting to hear you apply it to, to life decisions because everything else – you know, and I, you know, you, we, in an immigrant world, kind of, my mother is lamenting that I ever left Goldman Sachs to become a journalist. Like she's like, you know, for starters, you're not a doctor or an engineer, and you had this job. I could tell people you worked at, but now you're going to be journalist. What? What journalist? And you know, I mean, you have that. You have the adulation of your peers. You know, I know going to college reunions every year. Uh, the first five years out was an immensely stressful experience because everybody, and this is even before the LinkedIn and Twitter sphere, like where you're flashing your titles every five hours, you kind of benchmark yourself against what other people are doing. I mean, so-and-so is on partner track at a law firm. So-and-so is already managing two and 20 money. So-and-so is a uh, Supreme Court clerk. And you just don't want to be seen as kind of uh, uh, floating around aimlessly in your late 20s or early 30s. And so you, you lunge for stuff. Yeah, a bit, but you know, 
Uh, look, the funny thing is that at this, uh, one of the things that, I don't know that it was convincing and, and the, the thing that pushed me over the edge to take the job, but, but I was really proud of the fact that I had a title vice president when I joined this investment bank. And all my friends were joining firms as analyst or manager or something, and I had this title vice president. And I kind of liked that. I thought that was very cool at the time. It kind of um, means nothing in hindsight, though. It's you go and, and try to negotiate to buy a car. Like, Let me ask my manager, you know? I'm just deputizing <laughs> that other guy. To, that salesman's my manager today. I love it when I see junior investment bankers. are like, my MD told me this. My analyst told me that. It's such, a, such an insular, such a bubble, you know, bubble-driven world. And for me, it was enormously traumatic to kind of break out of that and go into journalism, for starters. But, but now, Robin, do you live in, in Manhattan? No, I lived in Manhattan for 10 or 12 years, and then breaking out of Manhattan was really difficult. Yeah. I'm in Virginia see, now. You see, you see, when you break, I think it's much easier, because are you in uh, Charlottesville? I'm near Charlottesville, that's right. I mean, you know, that is God's country. I, I was down there at some point, and I think it's a lot easier to be down-to-earth and rational and grounded when you're in a place like that, or Omaha, of course, mm -hmm. and... That was part of my decision to move to Zurich because because people aren't looking at you in that way, you know. And and if you if you have a dog and you go walk your dog, your dog doesn't really care whether you're a, a journalist or whether. Guy, you're a, how do you afford Zurich though? This is supposed to be the uh -huh. most expensive, one of the most expensive cities in the world. You see where the franc is. You see where the government bonds with negative yields. I mean, it's not exactly a. You know, it's one thing to open a value investing shop in in Savannah, Georgia. It's another thing to do it in the most expensive city in Europe. Um. I think that maybe Oslo is more expensive. I'm not sure. And what I tell you is that London is very, very expensive. I mean, I can't imagine that it's more expensive here than in London. But the other thing that I think, I haven't done the calculation that closely or accurately, but, um, you know, it, Zurich appears very, very expensive to people who don't live here. Uh, but, you know, the, the, there is very high sales tax. And there is a, a, a much lower, so there are no capital gains taxes in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you buy a stock, it doubles, you sell it. You don't have any, um, you don't have any capital gains to pay. And so there are, there are elements. And if you live, if you don't live in Zurich, Canton Zurich is not so great. But if you live in some of the other cantons, cantons is a bit like a state. It's a federal country and each canton sets its own taxes you have much lower levels of income taxes, which means that you get taxed if you buy stuff, but you don't get taxed if you just hold on to your wealth. Mm. So um, it's not as expensive as it appears to be. And there are all sorts of ways. I mean, you know, I very genuinely, okay, so I admit I do have a car, but I very genuinely don't need a car. I mean, uh, I can get everywhere on the public transportation here, and it's really, really good public transportation. I mean, everybody takes it. Uh, and it's not skanky at all. I mean, the, 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 it's above ground. There are these beautiful trams. There are beautiful seats to you sit on. You don't have to sell Zurich to the world, my man. <laughs> I'm telling you. Don't worry. Look, there are there are investment bankers who are willing to take the you know the one local train from the Upper West Side all the way to the Lower Manhattan and see horrific things at five in the morning. So believe me, that's that's <laughs> it, it doesn't that's need to train. be sold. That's well, the train that I used to take, by the way, the one and the nine. Yes, the one in the nine train. I wanna, I wanna get at what it was like to open your own fund. It was first day. Do we, do we say this is 1997? Was it a friends and family, friends and family effort to go and 
raise money? Friends and family, that's absolutely right. Or as they now say, friends, fools, and family, I think is the expression. What was that like? So you you didn't have to go out and find deals for, uh, you know, this Wolf of Wall Street, but you had to go and hit up people. And I imagine it weighed on your conscience and kept you up at night that you were taking familiar money. I mean, these are people who are rooting for you and you were promising them ostensibly an above market, not promising them, but signaling that you could do something better than an index fund would. People that I couldn't run away from, that's for sure, or I wouldn't want to run away from. You know, Robin, when I immigrated into the UK, I saw all sorts of people who, you know, the UK is a fair country, but but some people have more fairness than others. So people who'd grown up in the UK had all sorts of advantages over me. And I kind of felt that that was unfair, but never felt I had advantages that I had. So what am I trying to get to? And on some level, I'm not an entrepreneurial guy in that I don't think that... So in my case, what happened to me is my father came to me. When we arrived in the UK, he'd started a business. He had some savings and he said, look, you're interested in investing. And I know you're looking for jobs. I really want you to try going into business on your own. Mm-hmm. Now is the time for you to try and go to business on your own. And I'm willing to start you off with this investment. And I hope it'll grow. Uh, and I hope that you'll find other investors. I'll help you to find other investors. But I think the key point that I want to share with you, and I, I really take great pains to share that with all sorts of people, is that if I had not gotten that push from my dad, I'm not sure that I would have done it. I'm not sure that I would have gone out and raised money without that kind of extreme sense of confidence and desire to trust me that my father had. Hmm. And, you know, I really do feel like I stand on his shoulders. And so much so that the name of the fund, Aquamarine Fund, is actually, um, uh, it's, I basically, I felt bad or I wanted to show gratitude for the fact that he got me into this. I felt slightly bad that I'd never joined his business, which would have been a a bad idea, but every dad wishes his son will join his business. So I named the fund after the business that my father started. And my father started a business called Aquamarine Chemicals. So I called the fund the Aquamarine Fund. But, and I, you know, part of my motivation in the book actually was to kind of take the, take the cover off that and show it for what it is. I think that, you know, so many people in the world get so many different legs up from all sorts of different family members and, you know, kind uncles. And and I just think that it's important for us to make the world fairer for people to see that that was the case. You know, I don't want to pretend that this was something that I managed to do on my own. It wasn't. I did it with the help of my dad. And at any moment in the first 10 to 15 years, if he would have wanted to pull his money uh, my fund would have had to shut down because nobody else would have had confidence in me anymore. And by the way, let's let's not forget what that period was. It was getting into the unprecedented growth at any price environment of the stock market bubble, of the tech and telecom bubble of the late 90s, the internet bubble. Uh, it, it, it kind of exploded between 2000 and 2002. But that was an intensely tough time, even for Warren Buffett, you know, your idol, to go out and, and, and convince people to keep the faith in value investing. A lot of people out there were saying that he's talking an old book. It's not relevant anymore. We're talking new paradigms. Uh, PEs are out the door. Cisco should fetch 100 PE. This is an intensely difficult time to go and raise money for a value fund. In fact, yeah, no, that's true. And I, but I had a core kernel of capital that wasn't running away from me. And I could quietly sort of sit down and work on the ideas 
that I felt made sense. And so, you know, in a certain way that having that Keystone investor protected me from that whole environment. I, my hat goes off to people who don't have that. And every now and then you get people who manage to start their own investment funds without a specific Keystone investor. And that is extraordinary because the ways in which they have to think through things is so much more difficult than somebody like me who had a Keystone investor. Guy, when did you realize this was more than a kind of a, a you know, a vision quest or a family effort and, and something bigger than that, something that actually scaled? Was it was it during the crash of 2000, 2001? Was it during those dislocations? When did the big inflows start to come in? Well, actually, I, to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever had big inflows. I mean, it's really just been, um, you know, a little a dribble of new money every year, but then it's just been uh, the effects of compounding. And we all know that, as um, Albert Einstein said, compounding is the miracle of the modern, one of the eighth miracle of the modern world, if you just compound at any rate, your the funds end up ballooning at some point. And I would tell you that, you know, all my business school background and undergraduate degrees in economics and, you know, plenty of time enjoying mathematics, I understood, I had understood because I'd worked at a consulting firm and I had plenty of friends who were lawyers, I had understood that an investment business can scale in ways that consulting and legal firms, for example, can't scale. So that was something that I knew from the outset. And um, it wasn't like I, I went in with the intent to make it scale, but I knew that that was a very, very, that, that, was, that was the nature of the beast that I was playing with, and I was happy about that. So I understand that very few people realize that, was it the rule of 7.2%? compounding every year, your money roughly will double every 10 years. This had to be, what, is, what has been kind of your internal rate of return or the number you've kept track of in the 18 or 19 years you've been in business? That is a, that is a publicized number. And it's, and you know, I've had some horrible performance over the last year or two, which has pushed it down. So it's like around, now it's around 9%, 9.5% uh, relative to the S&P, which is around 6%. So it's kind of three to three and a half percentage points better than the S&P. Since, since you started in 97? Yes. And just to give our <laughs> listeners an idea as we transition to talking about value investing, what kind of difference does, does three percentage points make in the grand scheme of things? 300 basis points. It doesn't sound like much, but after all, we hear about investors doing a lot of self-harm to themselves by being in actively managed mutual funds and, and selling at the worst possible time and buying at the worst possible time. And so um, if, you, if you compound your money at... Let's just take a really nice number. If you compounded it uh, 15% uh, per year, you will double your money every five years. So, uh, you know, so one will turn to two after five years. It will turn to four after 10 years. That four will turn into 16 after 15 years, and it would be 32 times your original money. So if you had a notional $100,000, that would have turned into $3.2 million. It's quite extraordinary. And um, when you're compounding at, I don't have the charts in front of me, but when you're compounding at uh, 9%, that kind of turns into about four and a half or five times your money over the time that I've been investing, which is still an extraordinary number. And by the way, six is still pretty good. Six is approximately double over that period. Mm. And all of those are good numbers. I mean, even if you compound at 6%, you're doing just fine. You're your purchasing power is increasing at higher than the rate of inflation. Your actual ability to buy stuff has increased over time. Mm. So any of those numbers is good. Obviously, 15% is better. 
but 9% is good and even 6% is good. Uh, and in a certain way, the people who I think are successful at this are the people who just say, they say to themselves, you know, so long as I compound at some rate, any rate, I will do very, very well. Uh, and so that's, you know, compounding is an amazing thing. But I would tell you that it's just sort of scary to me how you can fall off. So, you know, I made some pretty important mistakes over the last year and a half, which I write about in my most recent annual letter. And, um, you know, that can, when you lose money, then you can, you, can, you can damage that compounding pretty quick. So, you know, I don't like the fact that my compounding rate, as a result of some mistakes that I made, went from above 10% to below 10%. And that's, you know, I... I but, and then, you know, the, the, the difficulty is, is that you, there's a tendency to say, well, I'm going to work really hard and get some really good ideas into the portfolio and get it back quick. You know, and of course, that is a very damaging way to think. You've got to think like, like, a, like a, a viticulture thinks of his vineyard. It's like every year you plant the vines, you water them, you pick the grapes. You have to just go through the slow and methodical process of uh, compounding your portfolio. It doesn't happen through any kind of rash and sudden moves. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, a, a guy who, who works out of New York, Alex Ropers, whom I met a long time ago, very, very accomplished and successful investor. You know, he showed me his track record, which is a superb track record. And he says, you know, guy, every single one of my mistakes is in this. <laughs> and, you know, and you always... I don't know how many times have you begun a game of chess with somebody and you kind of like pay three moves and it turns out you've done some really silly decision and you're like, oh, can we just wipe the state clean and start the game again? And if you've got a nice guy playing against you, they'll say, yeah, sure, we can start again. Mm. But investing, you can't do that. You can't rewind the clock. You don't have the time back. Uh, you have to, every mistake is in there as part of the record and affecting your compounding rate. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Guy Spear, joining us from Zurich. He's manager of the Aquamarine Fund, $170 million strong. He started with $15 million in 1997 and authored the uh, enormously useful book, The Education of a Value Investor, My Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom, and Enlightenment. I mean, people, he's presented it back at Harvard Business School, I believe. Uh, at Google, you presented it to Google employees. There are several videos of it online. It's been um, it, it, quite influential to a lot of people I respect, one of whom is Vitaly Katzenelson, a, 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 an esteemed former guest of this show. Just to give you an idea, the compounding effect of Robin Farzad in full disclosure, um, Vitaly wrote, Guy is a tremendous value investor who happens to be a good friend whose company I truly enjoy. He is the most cosmopolitan person I know. He was born in South Africa, spent his childhood in Iran and Israel, received his bachelor's degree from Oxford and MBA from Harvard, lived in New York, and in 2008 got sick of the New York hedge fund rat race and moved with his family to Zurich. His wife is Mexican, so in addition to being fluent in languages of all the above-mentioned countries, he romances in Spanish. Go you! <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really good. I'd like to meet that guy, Robin. Where is he? He loves you. He's in Denver. Vitaly Katzenelson. Oh, oh, yeah. No, Vitaly's lovely. He's, he's. you know, I feel a lot of um, solidarity. Well, first of all, I, I, you know, first of all, I feel a lot of solidarity with Vitaly because I think he's he's done an incredible journey. I mean, what's so amazing about Vitaly is that his mother tongue is not English. And he writes in English and he writes better in English than I will. Oh, you don't write. know I'm his ghostwriter, apparently. 
Vitaly doesn't know English. He sends me this dreck, half of which is in Russian, and I churn out these beautiful institutional investor things. But I didn't tell you that. Go ahead. <laughs> well, all, everybody, all writers have their muses and their editors and their people that they bounce stuff off. But I Pal, think- I made Vitaly Katzenelson. All right, let, let's shift to value stocks right here, right? Your, <laughs> your hero, Warren Buffett, just recently bought shares in the biggest uh, company in the world, uh, Apple, which many people say is the most problematic stock. Very rarely do you get the biggest company in the world being also the most problematic stock. I see that on a trailing basis, I was looking at the Luthold report, it, trade, it trades at a PE of, of about 10.6. The S&P 500 is about 17 or 18, the PE right now. Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, they have much higher PE is kind of more than double what Apple fetches right now. How do you look at a company as problematic as Apple? In, in some sense, the most indispensable technology company in the world, but many are saying is, is really past its prime. You know, it's, uh, it's actually, <laughs> Robin, it's really hard for me to look at Apple uh, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, people used to talk about Microsoft. Remember that Microsoft has done nothing over the last 10 years for its investors, as it's because it had a very, very high valuation. And the thing about Microsoft at the time was you just didn't know when Windows would get blown out of the water and how it would happen. And Apple, Microsoft has managed to hold on to vast areas of, of uh, the computer and technology space, but it could have, they could have been blown out of the water in an instant. And I just feel like Apple is riding very, very high right now uh, but who knows when that stops? It might stop very, very quickly. And so I, I uh, have a hard time trying to analyze Apple, and I don't try to analyze it. And Robin, there's another reason why it's very perhaps hard for me to look at Apple is that I have a friend who's based in New York, who's in, who he was a software engineer for both uh, Intel and for Microsoft. And about I don't know, this must be in the early 2000s. He takes out an early version of the iPhone. He says, guy, this technology is going to change the world. You need to buy into Apple stock. And that was about 1,000% ago. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't do it because I didn't really fully understand what he was telling me. But at the end of the day, I would just tell you, Robin, that I don't understand how to value Apple. I well, from the dilemma of all this cash that they're throwing off, which is almost a, an albatross around the neck of, of management in Cupertino, you've never had a company with uh, $210 billion in cash that you know, you're know you damned if you do, damned if you don't. People want you to spend it. Real tech investors out there say you should be investing it in moonshots, like you saw Microsoft with a moonshot today buying you know, LinkedIn for $27 billion. I don't know to what avail, but there are others out there, pure value investors. If, you know, if Warren Buffett is willing to go and spend a, a billion on your stock, they're saying that Apple should be reinvesting, plowing any of its immense uh, free cash back into buying its own shares if no one else will. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, I think that they are, if you're the management of Apple, though, you, it's just kind of scary to do that because once you've bought, repurchased your stock, you can't get that money back other, other than by selling your stock again. And they, I mean, that is just gives a signal if they were really confident of their market position and their ability to look forward 20, 30 years and know that the, the sailing was plain sailing, I think they'd be more aggressive in repurchasing their stock. But they know that they're, they, you know, they might be on the cutting edge today, but they might be on the bleeding edge within a very short period of time. And something that just happened to me, I'd tell you, Robin, is that I, uh, I switched from, um, from iOS to Android. And I am so impressed with Android. And you know, I read somewhere that Android is on you know, the four times more devices than Apple is on. 
And who knows if, if it's Android that blows Apple out of the water, or maybe it's some other operating system. And and I don't think it's far fetched to imagine that to see to 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 imagine a scenario where today Apple dominates and it has all these complementarities between all the different aspects of its ecosystem, and suddenly that gets blown out of the water within a one or two year period. Um, and for that reason, I just think that. Uh, the management are not repurchasing their shares more aggressively because they just don't know when they might want to go and buy their version of LinkedIn or whatever it is because they don't feel like they can protect their moat mm. just on their own internally developed technology. And what do you um, what do you make of the moonshot companies out there? Obviously, Tesla is is looked at kind of heroically. It's in, immensely volatile. You have Amazon's valuation now, which is $120 billion more than Walmart. You see Facebook's valuation. Some of the you know fifth generation internet players out there they they make the uh, the the nosebleed PE multiples of the year two thousand look kind of Sesame Street by comparison. How much of that is is kind of worrying you that we're going to see this play out again? I mean, I I find it all bewildering actually, Robin, uh, because because they they you know I, they're real businesses. They have real profits. This is not like sort of web van of the 19, late 1990s and other vaporware type companies. I mean, I remember the name of a company called LivePerson and <clears throat> these companies all disappeared. I don't think that anybody expects companies like Uber and Airbnb to disappear. And when you're in their shoes, the world is your oyster. And I tell you that if you haven't spent any time or any of your listeners haven't spent any time in Palo Alto, it's worth visiting because the view of the world from Palo Alto is great. There's a place called the Blue Bottle Cafe, and it's just a hive of activity. And every dozens of new businesses starting up, each one wanting to rewrite the value chain in various different industries. But but from I don't live in Palo Alto, and I see these companies looming, and they seem to want to take over everything. And I kind of you know Warren Buffett's kind of summarized this idea by what happens if all of the work to satisfy everybody on the planet could be done by one person flipping a switch. And I feel like there's this smaller and smaller number of companies that are, that are kind of taking over more and more and more of various people's value chains and doing it in an incredibly efficient and effective way. Mm. And I, it's strange because I'm, I'm a big capitalist. I'm a libertarian. I believe in the forces of creative destruction. And, you know, I had the, the opportunity to, to go to a, a lunch with um, Eric Schmidt. And I, I said to him, you know, Eric, you're... Google is sucking advertising revenues out of France. It's disintermediating French advertising agencies. And, you know, those French advertising agencies were employing people, paying rent, using resources in France, and paying taxes in France. And now that money's going straight to, uh, to you in Mountain View. I think there's going to be a backlash. And I think that Google, they've just been hit with something in the EU. But I, I think that, you know, I find myself taking a kind of a socialist, anti-business type approach where I say these people have to be a little bit more responsible in the way they are uh, remaking value systems. I, and at the end of the day, I find it bewildering. I find it utterly bewildering. And I wish I could say that um, I totally understand what's going on and I know how to play this. Mm. But I turned down an investment in Apple that would have made me, would have increased my compounding rate enormously. I turned down, I really felt like I understand, understood the argument for um, for investing in Amazon five or six years ago, and I didn't make that investment, and um, uh, and so far it's been well, it's it's been painful to watch, but at the same time, 
I'm not about to compound that mistake by buying into these companies at the nosebleed valuations that they have right now. At some mm. point, a company really genuinely is overvalued. Mm. And they, so they're extraordinary businesses that have the whole world in their sights that also happen to be, uh, I, I think they are probably overvalued. Mm. And at some point, that turns exactly when that turns, who knows? Uh, but so far, it's been painful for me, way more painful, I would tell you, than 1999 period. Really? Uh, which I think was relatively short-lived. Uh, Guy, in the five or six minutes we have left, tell us where you are seeing value around the world. I mean, certainly it's been a prolonged period of, of uh, Fed super easy monetary policy. There are negative interest rates uh, in, in a record number of uh, locations and cent central bank theaters across the planet. Um, and we haven't had true, true volatility. I mean, kneecapping volatility of, of the kind of 2010 Europe, 2011 Europe, 2008 U.S. vintage in, in such a long time. It's like uh, memories are so short term. So where are you finding kind of textbook value? And I think that, you know, I think that if you look at in any generation, value investors are always saying, oh, it's much harder now than it's ever been. And, but I now really believe it, Robin. It really is much harder now because of the zero interest rates. And you know, Warren Buffett has said the same thing. Uh, so you know, what does somebody like me do? I'm, I'm taking much closer looks at two different places. Um, I'm starting to look very much closer. China's a very hard market for me to look at because I don't speak Chinese. But India is an English-speaking market. And I think if you go below the Nifty 50, type uh, companies of um, India, you start getting some very, very interesting values. And I think that I'm going to be doing a lot more work there. I also, I, in a, you know, there's a, I, I have a bankruptcy in my portfolio that I'm working on, and it's taught me a lot about the bankruptcy space. And so, you know, you, you look at, there are so many oil and gas companies that have filed for Chapter 11. And I don't think the oil is going away. And so there's, there's you know, when you're looking at sort of really um, unusual situations, I think there's value, but I think that the other side of it is just to is just to admit and, and acknowledge the fact that in a zero interest rate environment with a lot of cash sloshing around, it's very very hard to find decent value. And so where am I? I mean, I want to be. I believe that sooner or later inflation kicks in, and I want all of the investments that I have to be inflation protected. Uh, I find it very hard and difficult to the extent that I'm taking the other side of some of these Silicon Valley plays. So there's a lot of enthusiasm, for example, about fintech here in Switzerland and, and in the United States and in London. Mm. And um, but I think that at the end of the day, uh, you know, those financial tech, fintech companies will be incorporated into the financial system, and many of the traditional bricks and mortar type money center banks will do just fine. Uh, and so I think there's value in money center banks, for example. And, and I, I think that in spite of Elon Musk and self-driving cars and a remaking of the transportation value chain, I think that the automobile companies are at the center of that. And people are kind of making the assumption that because they're going to be self-driving cars, the existing automobile companies are toast. And I think that that's probably not the case. Mm. But um, it's it's uh, it's. I just don't think it's an easy time. And I think that one of the hardest things that I've seen is that the companies that have clearly got moats that aren't going away haven't have been priced up significantly. So they're certainly not cheap. And there are all sorts of companies that are in the real world economy. I mean, just to give you one esoteric example, there's there's companies that supply all sorts of different liquefied gases to industrial processes. Well, it turns out that 
All of those businesses are kind of natural monopolies. They have very good margins and will continue to do so. And there's no way that the internet or anything like that can, or Facebook or LinkedIn can disintermediate them. But they all have super high valuations or another couple paints. You know, we're not, no amount of internet is going to take away our desire to want to paint walls fresh. But those, those companies, uh, the valuations have increased as people have realized that, that those moats aren't going away. And so I think that the job of people like me is really difficult. But, um, you know, there's some famous guy who said it's not supposed to be. Oh, it's, what am I talking about? It's Charlie Munger. So there's two great quotes from Charlie Munger that are worth uh, your listeners hearing. First of all, he kind of said either at the Daily Journal annual meeting or at the Berkshire meeting, he says, it's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> What did you think? Did you think you were just going to hang out, invest your money, buy something obvious, and it would go up and you'd get rich? It's not supposed to be easy, simple as that. If you're finding it hard, that's what it should be. And that goes for anyone investing their own portfolios or people like me who do it professionally. Um, the other thing uh, that he said, Robin, is that he, I mean, this gives a testament to how unusual an environment we're in. He said, if, you, if you're not confused, you don't understand what's going on <laughs> or something like that. I may not have the phrasing just right, but, but you know, in Charlie Munger's view, to paraphrase him, if, if the people he respects intellectually, the people who thinks, he thinks are aware of what's going on in the world, don't understand this, this era of ultra-low interest rates and even negative interest rates. And it makes it very hard for us to invest, but it's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> the Venerable Guy Spear, managing partner of the Aquamarine Fund in Zurich and author of a book you must pick up. It's called The Education of a Value Investor, My Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom, and Enlightenment. Thank you so much, sir, for putting aside the time to be with us. Hey, Robin, it's such, such a pleasure. You know, there are so many ways in which I want to explore who you are. I think you're a fascinating personality with, a, with an Iranian and a Jewish background. I think that that already gets me going in all sorts of ways. Um, and so it's just a pleasure to meet you live on your show. I never thought I'd do that. Oh, shucks. Well, that's why I get paid the big bucks, guy. Full <laughs> disclosure, our engineer is Mr. John Valentine. Great guy. Catch us on NPR One, WRIR, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast. And you know what, Spotify, you should carry us already, damn it. Uh, somebody tell Spotify to please carry us. I, I, I would learn how to say it in Swedish, uh, hopefully next time. So you guys hearing me? Uh, we enjoy a wide moat on a risk-adjusted basis. We're best in breed, five-star rated, two in 20 for friends and family. Greed is good, sure, but only when others are fearful. I'm Robin Farzad, back at you next week.